Shoecast. Welcome back to the Stitch Down Shoecast, where we talk quality footwear, how it's made, and all the things that we love about it. I'm Ben from Stitchdown.com, and I've just received news that Ticho has enlisted in the Marines for the free boots and is in basic training this week. Wish you well, Ticho, but this week it's just me and our esteemed guest, Jason Petrich, proprietor of Division Road, Inc., the Seattle menswear mecca that is certainly one of the most important and almost definitely the most prolific special makeup collaborators in the entire boot world. But before we get to Jason, I need to do two things. First, say a huge thank you to our sponsor this week, Grand Stone, who makes what is perhaps the best value boots and shoes anywhere in the world. Follow them on Instagram and definitely sign up for their newsletter to get on those screaming B-grade deals. Grand Stone! Thing two, I just wanted to remind everybody that the best way to support this particular shoe cast is to become a member of the Stitchdown Premium community, where every day really is the best day. But we're also going to be announcing something very big and exciting in the short term. Plus, there's all sorts of discounts, giveaways, early access, all that stuff. See stitchdown.com for more info. But let's bring him in. The proprietor, which I have to say is one of the best titles of them all, of Division Road, Jason Petrich. Jason, my friend, how are you doing? And what good, sir, are you wearing on your feet today? Ben, thanks for having me. That was quite an illustrious intro, so I appreciate it. It's good to know that at least some people outwardly say things about me that I think about me, so that's great. I do it all the time. (laughs) Sometimes I record it. I am wearing Viberg Collaboration Chukkas in the Petrol Chamois. Oh, yeah. Yeah, underrated all-stars. I've been a fan of this pattern for quite some time. The K-Born days, the collaborations Brett did with Nigel. But I never got one until we uh, we actually had a client for the made-to-order who kind of had some strokes of brilliance with the last and the pattern combination of the 2040 to the Chukka, which made a whole lot more sense on foot than in my mind than the 110 because I had put those on and kind of just like quite sloppy. It's a big last. It's a big last and it's not a tight pattern, so to speak. Yeah, it, it definitely had like more of a, a slop feel in the 110 and not a whole lot of like lace adjustment on this thing. For the most part, it's it's almost like a non-lace style. But the 2040 with the snug waist and heel works perfectly. So we essentially stole that from a very good client of ours and did it in tobacco chamois and then these petrols. And I, I like live in these things. They're fantastic. I think this is probably like my second Navy pair of boots or shoes. Definitely something worth trying. But yeah, dude, I, I love those. Those are on the, what, the 2021 wedge or something like that, right? Yeah, the 2060, which is essentially just the lighter version of the 2021. Little chiller. Yeah. Love it, man. Classic DR Viberg boot. I'm also wearing some Division Road Vibergs. Really? 310 service boots, black oil tan rough out on the Gloxy cut. You may remember this. My father-in-law yep. saw me post these boots. He just texted me. He's like, I need them. I was like, reach out to my man, Jason. You guys talked and he got these boots. And two months later, he's like, I'm never going to wear these things. I'm like 70 <laughs> years old. <laughs> like, what am I doing? What? <laughs> and like, I'm going to put, you know, my keen hikers back on. 
actually at first he was like, do you want to break them in for me? They're like a little different than I expected. <laughs> I was like, sure, I'll break them in for you. And then he just basically let me keep them. Uh, such a fun boot. Absolute monsters. I'm kind of on record as not even loving the Gloxy Cut sole normally, but with this, the black on black, uh, it looks great. And like, I've never doubted the comfort. I love these things. They're they're so fun. It's a big sole. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. It's definitely like one of the highest profile soles. Um, and I kind of call it the ATV of wedge soles. <laughs> yeah. With that makeup, it was like, you know, let's go big on big, full moto kind of cult craziness and just see how it turns out. And we don't do a lot of that, but I have an old, I think it was from Kentaris, like way back in the day. I have an old 310 on a Vibram 4014, so a Christie sole. Loved the 310 on the wedge sole. However, it's kind of like you're constantly walking uphill. And so with that one, we actually put a foam wedge to pick up the heel height that's natural in the 310. Once that Gloxy breaks in and the, and the toe unsprings a bit, that it wouldn't be like walking uphill all the time. So I think functionally, it turned out quite nice. And the guys that got them love them and, and wear them pretty frequently. I, it's possible that it's lessened a little bit over time. I've had these for, I mean, a year plus now. Uh, still just breaking them in, wonderful father-in-law. But yeah, the initial days of these things... With that toe spring, like you're not even walking, you're kind of like rolling down the street with every step, and it's a pretty cool feeling. At first, it's a little odd, uh, but once you get it, it's like kind of borderline luxurious, especially for a monstrous boot like that. Yeah, I mean the three tens like that. It's it's not everybody's cup of tea, and it I think it takes a a while to get used to how it forces you to walk, which is is heel to toe and by design. But yeah, you know, once you get used to it. You know, a lot of guys swear by it and and love it, and I I've been one of those guys. So not a quiet boot, nor should it be. <laughs> not at all. All right, so Division Road, five years old at this point. That wasn't the beginning for you. You didn't say, "Oh, I love boots, and I'm going to open up a shop, and away we go." You've done a lot in the menswear industry and the footwear industry over the years. I mean, obviously we have to do, you know, the whole getting to know you thing, but I'm hoping we can take a slightly more interesting approach here. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit right off the bat, Jason. I'd love for you to take me through, you know, the important stops on your career. And as you're doing it, see if you can focus in on the things that you saw or learned along the way that helped you build and realize you should build the idea for Division Road. Is that too tough? It might be. We'll find out. In terms of career trajectory, I don't think that it's been linear for me, but it's definitely been related. Went to design school, started at business, you know, in business administration before that. Found myself post-school working in architectural design and manufacturing, denim specifically. Moving from that, opened up architectural firm did that until the housing bust, was always doing product development kind of on the side, so to speak, and then kind of restarted back in retail, back in production, back in design as a consultant, short-term projects, long-term projects, because I still had a lot of connections there just if I keep my toes in the water, so to speak, with the fashion industry, then went full in with the Vision Road. The whole time, after I decided to get back into retail and, and the apparel business and all of that, 
I'd been developing the business plan of Division Road. I think in terms of what I learned from beginning to end in and out of this business, experience is key and applying learnings, i.e. failures the next time and looking for better ways to do things always yields results in your next endeavor. So, you know, I've done a lot of a lot of different projects and a, and a couple of different businesses. All of the things that I've learned kind of become relevant for the next stage. Opening up Division Road, that really was a business plan of seven years in development. That's crazy. It kind of was. Yeah. And I was obsessed. I mean, one of the things about being a consultant, whether it's a pivot, a repositioning, an 11th hour failure that you're trying to turn around, or just product development, branding, marketing, whatever, you're essentially telling somebody how to run their business. You know, my big thing with Division Road was this was a dream. I didn't have the name or anything like that, but a shop, a retail environment, etc., was always kind of like a dream of mine. But I had to make sure that it was going to be as close to as I could ensure success as possible because it was going to be the thing that I put my name on after having, by and large, like a you know a decade of experience telling other people what to do with their businesses. A little lower stakes when nobody knows. I had to hedge the bets, you know. <laughs> I couldn't go out there and like fail. So I put a lot of pressure. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good approach right there. Yeah, yeah. You, don't you know, fail. Don't fail. I had to make sure everything that I had learned and the possible roadblocks and hinge points for the business were covered. And the business plan evolved quite a bit. Interestingly, footwear was always kind of core to it. In fact, it kind of started as, you know, a shoe store, quote unquote, in terms of the original business plan. I learned a lot of things. I learned that I didn't want a partner. Why is that? I'd done a lot of projects where, you know, five seven, 10 years down the road, two partners, three partners of quote unquote boutique businesses, ones that had scaled, some that really hadn't. But at some point, most of the time, the visions deviate. One person becomes less interested. There's friction between what it should be, what it was, etc. Let me put it this way. I always wanted to be able to take the next step without that kind of internal friction. You know me a little bit. You know, I kind of make up my mind after doing hopefully a lot of diligence and research, and then I just do it as much as I can. And I never wanted to have the internal friction of like, well, we can't do that. That doesn't make sense to me. Or to get five, seven, ten years down the line and have the whole thing break up just because someone was not interested anymore. So I'd been in those 11th hour situations, and a lot of times they involve partners. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that, you know, most of my background was more in, I'd say, luxury or fashion oriented brands and productions. Like for my denim development experience, that was all like premium major brand stuff. And and I'd worked with designers that dabbled in heritage, but it wasn't, you know, the core of their business. So I think one of the evolutions was the heritage market in general, because that's where I was passionate about the product and about the production. I think combining that with a better presentation of those goods that kind of matched the price point and the quality in terms of the manufacturing and, and all of that was, was huge. Kind of cut my teeth 
in product development and consulting during kind of what I call the collaboration era, you know, whether you want to call it heritage revival and the streetwear, but I mean, collaborations were big and I thought that that was very interesting. So that became kind of like a core tenant. Footwear first was kind of where I started mentally, definitely where we ended and really looking to kind of blend the old heritage market retailers like Selfedge and Context and what they did in terms of like content, bringing new old brands to the marketplace. And I kind of wanted to revive that because I felt like websites were like actually in terms of copy and editorial were getting more modern or scaled down or whatever you want to call it and really appealing to kind of the core collector and remaining responsible and loyal to that customer while also exposing this product to a broader market. So I think those were things that came through the business plan over a period of time. And being distinct, and that was something that I definitely learned. A lot of brands or shops, they try to to differentiate themselves. And I don't even know if that's important. I think the most important thing is, is to be distinct. Whatever that personality of the shop or the brand is, as long as it's memorable in a certain certain regard in terms of the experience or the presentation or the products themselves, I think being distinct was something that, that I learned that definitely drove Division Road. I don't know if any of that answers. What was the question that I asked? I have no idea. I don't know. It's not really how we do this. <laughs> but wait, I have another tough one. Something that you said really resonates with my outlook kind of throughout life, certainly was stitched down, you know, my whole career, but like just life, which is the only way to really learn something is to fuck it up and then figure out what went wrong and do it much, much better. Like it just, it sticks with you in a way that having success and building on it kind of doesn't. That's the easy part. What was a thing or two that, you know, you fucked up or saw that somebody else did along the way that influenced how you're approaching Division Road? Oh, God. I think the biggest thing was capital management was probably one of those either too much money or not enough money to scale the business. I think that that was one of those big things and really forgetting the core tenants of the business, having an infrastructure, knowing what the business should be drives it for, you know, its entire life cycle. And I think that that's something that I came across didn't really understand, learned a lot about in my career where, you know, really maintaining, you know, whether it's a mission or vision or whatever you want to call it, but maintaining like the core of the business through the life of the business. That was something that that I needed to learn. And I think that it's something that I still see a lot of failure in because, you know, everybody wants to be kind of new and different. That's great. But when you forget who your customer is, how they've gotten you to the place where you can actually be new and different, I think that that's a very treacherous road. And I think that that's probably, in my view, where a lot of companies go wrong. They forget their core business. They forget their core consumer and just are trying to, quote unquote, evolve or, or be different or be bigger or be whatever. How do you see the too much money part going screwy? Like too much investment that you kind of beholden to somebody or too much money sounds like a nice problem. I guess another a learning, I guess you could say, was every business has a natural scale. 
And you can do things to kind of increase that. You definitely want to do things to keep that scale at the highest level it could be, i.e. like minimize cost, maximize profit, right? Like kind of 101 econ. But too much money forces a lot of people to overscale. In the United States in particular, we have a mantra of expansion in business practices. And, you know, if there's not a market there and you just throw money, I mean, you can acquire customers with any amount of money. You can acquire market share with any amount of money. Whether it is profitable at a certain level, a bigger level is to be determined. I think we're seeing a rollback of that a lot now where, you know, whether it was, you know, locations or products, there was a huge oversaturation in the marketplace. And a lot of companies are having to roll that back. Capital tends to just fuel the need to apply it. You know, so people just spend money. And spending money doesn't, you know, you can overshoot the market. You can overshoot your natural scale of business quite easily. So a lot of people think that capital is the, you know, solve in a lot of business practices, but it can also be just as much of a detriment. So I think having the right amount of capital at your disposal for the plans that make sense within the scale of your market, I think that's the key. When I started Division Road, you know, the market was quite saturated in terms of retailers, brands, etc. I knew that we had to make an impression on the marketplace, that it was that you were past the point in, in heritage or menswear or whatever you want to call it, where you could kind of scale from a small shop, have a decent online business and kind of grow that like organically, we had to make an impression. And that was website infrastructure, brand infrastructure. That was, you know, quote unquote, the physical environment to a degree and product. And so I had to invest a certain amount into product that would, you know, make an impression in the marketplace. The year that the time of growing that over, say, a five to 10 year period, that time was gone because there were so many competitors in the marketplace trying to get kind of a shrinking or at least quite stable plateaued, you know, niche and niche in the space we operate. So I had to have a certain amount of, of money in order to do that. But if I had too much, I probably would have overshot it. And I think that that's something that I, I try to evaluate in, in our business, like whether it's inventory or investment in other ways, not to overshoot our scale, right? And, and be as efficient as we can with every dollar, with every person, with every action. So yeah. That's a really interesting outlook and makes me very happy all of a sudden uh, that I don't have any capital uh, in this venture of mine, <laughs> which apparently equals success. So I'm excited about that. All right, let's talk about boots. DR has this, you know, very unique overall vision, you know, in terms of worldview and aesthetics and definitely exclusive collaboration when it comes, you know, to your boots and your makeups and your shoes and everything. Where does that mindset come from and how did you operationalize that? Like we've talked a lot about this. Like, well, look, this is stuff that stays in your rotation. Like it pops, but you know, it's not hype shoes necessarily. Like how did you how did you get there and how do you do it? I think with a background in design and 
having a critical eye helps in anything I apply myself to. I, I think I want to elevate stuff. So, but not elevate just in terms of impression. And I think in, you know, quote unquote, the hype market, it's really easy to just throw stuff together to garnish the most attention. I really look towards utility and aesthetics. We used to call it form and function until that got worn out. But utility and aesthetics to be a marriage with each other. And I think that's, you know, what you're speaking of where, you know, our makeups aren't always the most like crazy. But the goal is whether a guy has one or two pairs of this level of footwear or the collector, that it's something that they can and want to wear regularly. And, you know, this stuff is built to be worn, heritage goods, rebuildable footwear, resolable footwear. Sure, there's a lot of guys that where this is a, a collectible to them and they don't wear them a lot, but it is designed to be worn. And so approaching product with that mentality is I think kind of if you look at our collection outside of the boots you're wearing but still like we were thinking about function with with those three tens on a crazy galaxy soul that that's kind of like always been our approach they're very functional exactly without question like that's the thing about specifically the galaxy soul like again I don't I like it on these I don't love the looks of it generally but is there anything more comfortable does it work so well with that particular strange last like the answer is yes on both and that you know that's a success and you know even those weren't i mean they're aesthetically very dramatic especially on the shelf or photographed online i think one thing about the 310 you put it on foot and it takes on a completely different persona mm -hmm. than it looks on a website or uh on a shelf but one of the things in terms of like special makeups and collaborations. I learned in design, starting and working with designers that were, you know, far better than I'll ever be. Materials should always lead the conversation. So I start with what's available in terms of, you know, if we're talking about footwear, leathers, obviously, uh, soles, midsoles, strip it down to the materials and let really the leather inform the makeup, right? I think that keeping in mind like utility and form as a marriage and for, you know, a certain guy, that's kind of what drives that that design process. If you look at really all of our per brand, we'll appropriate, bad word these days, I guess, but allocate a leather towards a specific style and it is exclusive to that style until we decide not to make that, you know, have that style produced anymore so we only have one black chrome xl viberg wait really across your whole lineup and that has remained true i didn't yeah. even realize that the only exception is the natural dublin with viberg because that was an exclusive leather that you know we had ordered for us and and so we have like four service boots on the natural dublin wow outside of that Black Chrome Excel has remained on that 2030 service boot with the straight cap toe and the 4014 Christie sole since our launch. Five years. That's the only Black Chrome Excel boot we've had from five That's years. wild, man. Yeah. I can't wait to go back to your page and just realize that because I hadn't. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like it's for that. <laughs> and 
that's how we designed it and that's how it remains until you know we're we're done with it so to speak or, or customers are done with it by not purchasing it anymore so yeah natural chrome excel rough out viberg specifically you know that has remained on the pairing to that black chrome xl service boot we've used that in some kind of like two-tone makeups uh with viberg oh there it is there it yep. is yeah cheating a little cheat it's a little cheat yeah but it's, you know it's two-tone but yeah like all of chrome excel remains on that until that's done yeah that and that's kind of how i approach materials is they're they get put in in a specific utility for a period of time and style and 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 to kind of make limited a little bit more limited i guess now you're talking horsebutt is finally kind of caught on over the last couple of years i would say veg tan you you couldn't five years ago brett and i would have this conversation like you know a lot of the market wasn't interested in veg tan it was all chrome pack chrome xl you know that that was the thing guys were kind of looking for now veg tan then horse butt but that leather for example horse butt you don't want to put that on just anything i mean that is it's dense on certain makeups it, it can be completely unwearable on the same token rough outs reversed hides you know those don't perform well in the long run on on other patterns especially when you get into to hole cuts non-lace styles no form of adjustment and that through the break-in you want those those boots to have certain properties molding to the foot not bagging out etc being very specific about the material to the pattern to the end use for a particular guy is definitely how we approach collaborations which i think does make us you know a little bit different than than most yeah it takes a lot of you know not just foresight and understanding, but, you know, kind of work. And, you know, I often think that, you know, the best creativity is done actually like, in, you know, think outside the box. Like it's actually done inside a box that you specifically put yourself in and like maybe try and punch out of every once in a while. But it kind of seems like, you know, you're putting these restrictions on yourself, not just from a perspective of how a product looks or what's available and what's exclusive, but I mean, function essentially. A hundred percent. And I, I think, you know, whether it's developments or current days of limited supply, you know, having constraints within the design process, whether they're self-afflicted or not, are important and often yield a much better end result in terms of the product. That is something that kind of architecture taught me, I think, way back in the day because we did a bunch of site-specific stuff. Each site had its benefits and and its restrictions and its challenges, threats. If you adapted the design to leverage the assets, minimize, or even kind of leverage some of the challenges, you know, that's when stuff became, you know, special. All right, look, I think that's a perfect place to take a break. We'll be right back with the Jason cast. This is Grant Stone Jeopardy. Exciting, right? Do, 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 do. Yeah, we definitely won't get sued for that. It's unrecognizable. I think so. Yeah, it's so bad it's good. I get to be Alex. R.I.P. Alex, we love you. Ticho, you know the rules of Jeopardy. I'll read a clue, and you have to answer in the form of a question, or you lose. 
which would be impressive as you're the only contestant. I am very familiar with Jeopardy. Been a longtime fan of the show. I am convinced that I can beat Watson at Jeopardy. Let's find out. This popular Grant Stone shoe last shares a name with the fifth sign of the Zodiac. What is Leo? Correct. Yes. Good start. Mm. Moving forward, these two Grant Stone boot models were the first two released by the brand at exactly the same time. What are Diesel and Ottawa? Correct. Ah, nice. Whew. Man, you're on fire. So you probably have $300 now, I guess. Unless you start from the bottom, but I don't, I don't know how you play Jeopardy. Oh, no, I'm like an Arthur Chu. I'm all over the map. I'm hunting for the Daily Doubles, bro. Grant Stone used this exotic leather in a recent limited release makeup. What is ostrich? Correct. Nice. Three for three. This is uncharacteristic. I told you I'm really good at this. My personal favorite article on the grantstone.com journal features an incredible interview with Wyatt's sadly passed grandfather Floyd, who worked for this shoe manufacturer for 60 years. What is the Alden Shoe Company? Correct. Everybody go read that. It's wonderful. And Floyd is the man. More Grant Stone family Jeopardy trivia. Choo, 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 choo. This is the Daily Double. Oh, nice. All right. I want to wager everything. Let's make it a true Daily Double, man. Got to do it. This New York bar is where Wyatt and his dad and I stayed out drinking beer until 2 a.m. one night, even though I kept trying to go home because I am weak. What kind of clue is that, man? I I don't know. This is like, who are you, Mr. Peanut Butter hosting the show right now? I mean, you better try. This is the Daily Double. Oh, man. I, I made it a true Daily Double, too. I don't really know the names of a lot of bars. And I don't. Can you give me a neighborhood? Will you give me a. <laughs> Jeopardy doesn't really have hints, but. No, it doesn't. <laughs> this is where I wish we were... this was a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire ad where I could, like, phone a friend or something and I could just phone Wyatt and ask him. We're going to need an answer. Ah! I'll go for McGillahan's Irish Whiskey Emporium. Well, guess what? I have no idea what the answer is. We had a lot of fun that night. <laughs> Grant Stone Jeopardy has some different wrinkles to it than uh, than, than real Jeopardy. But uh, I'm here for it. I had a great time. And what did I win? $1,000 or something? You won $0. No, because even if you come in last, you get 1000 bucks. Okay, you win $1,000. All right. I'll get the check out immediately. Ticho. Big thanks for playing Grant Stone Jeopardy. And now, back to the Jason cast. All right, we're back with Jason from Division Road, Inc. So there's a big difference that, you know, kind of like a casual boot aficionado might not always understand between collaboration, you make this pattern, you have these leathers, Let's put them together. Let's put the sole on and the eyelets and, you know, away we go versus development, actually working with somebody to create something new, often exclusive, which is something that that you've done, perhaps most notably um, with the the Shelby boots, the Shelby Sharps uh, and a number of others. What is that like? How do you do it? Like, can you talk me through what you do? Like you fly to Victoria and just toil away or like how does that work because the results are pretty darn cool but my god it must be additional effort let's say for sure to start it 
what does it take? I think a lot of this stuff, diligence and a certain level of annoyance is key. And then trust. And I think that that's probably and hopefully what we've developed with all of our manufacturing brands to a certain degree is we're not just in this for like a a single shot or a single season that we're really looking to kind of build a relationship and a market for their product as it stands, but then also like pushing it forward, having it more appropriate to maybe a different guy, so to speak. I don't let stuff lie. And that's just kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with that Harry Met Sally line where you know, let it lie. You know, that's what I'm good at. Let it lie. See what I did there? I've never seen the film, but I have been to Katz's Deli quite a bit. So you've never I've seen I've never Harry... seen it. I've never seen it. I have these horrific holes in my kind of like vintage movie experience, like stuff that I should have seen when I was a kid because I didn't have a TV for a while when I was a kid, which makes me just like a fucked up person. Occasionally, maybe for the better. But yeah, I've been like, kind of trying to go through some of like I had never seen Thelma and Louise until two weeks ago when I watched it with my wife and it's a great movie turns out who knew (laughs) we watched Flashdance a while back not as good of a movie but no still pretty fun so I'm like I'm trying to I'm trying to pick my way through some of this stuff but no I've never seen Harry Met Sally and I suck because of it I'm sorry well, and you're a New York guy. This is like... Yeah, I just went and ate the sandwich instead, you know? I just went and ate the sandwich. And, and guess what? It's pretty good. Pretty good. Costs about as much as a pair of your boots these days, but... But they're gone now, right? They closed. Catches? Is it still open? Because they announced a closure. It's basically that whole block. Now we're getting into, like, some New York real estate stuff. It's one story in the middle of, you know, the hottest real estate in the Lower East Side. Right. So right. it's it's ultimately going to be gone, or they'll preserve it you know not really but somehow yeah but yeah long term that building is is done for done right yeah right on ludlow corner of ludlow there yeah that's right i used to live right there i always stay right there and eat at cats so harry met sally if you haven't seen it dow of relationships in a two-hour format telling you so many great lines and things that you wouldn't think came from a movie came from that movie so anyways orgasms nobody had one before then not in the middle of a a restaurant i think it was just generally okay could be wrong could be wrong um developments i'm not great at letting things lie i am or can be i guess persistent would be a positive way to to frame it but i think a lot of the reason hope a lot of the reason that our makers engage some of this stuff with us is trust. And, you know, frankly, a lot of what I did in my career was, you know, bridging designer to manufacturer. I can speak the language. You know, I don't let them just like proceed with an order. I'm a checks and balance and then say, oh, this didn't come out how I thought it was. Like, I've never done that to anybody. So I think, you know, taking these risks because it's, yeah, you know, it's time and effort from from our side for sure. Uh, and I spend a, a good amount of time on collaborations of all sorts. But it it's obviously an investment from their end as well. And they want to, anybody would want that to pay dividends, whether they use that pattern or, 
you know, it informs other patterns, etc. And I think a lot of heritage brands, footwear companies, they're in their own world of, of manufacturing, by and large, and that's their focus. And so good ideas, or at least other ideas, there is some welcoming, I think, of that as long as they think it's not going to, you know, burn up a lot of time and yield no results, right? You know, in terms of the Shelby, for example, with Brett, that probably just started with me kind of becoming obsessed with Peaky Blinders, the series, the BBC series. You murderous wretch. (laughs) A blinder for sure. (laughs) In terms of style and cinematics, one of the best things on television for a number of years. You know, Viberg stuff is was generally like street or work, but Brett was coming out with, you know, he kind of did the Goodyear Welting thing and Chelsea and was definitely leaning more into dress styles. So the, the first iteration of that was actually a derby boot, and it was quite a simple ask, like, hey, can we take this derby boot, which was a Goodyear Welted only pattern? And Pinkett, I think he's like, yeah. And that was when they were pretty much just doing the half moon pinking. And that was all by hand with this old machine. And so we we took that derby boot and we pinked the, the backstay and a portion of the quarter and a brogue cap toe. That was the pinky blinder boot, which we did two of those. Uh, uh, and this is goes back to materials and forming the story and stuff. So... You know, Thomas Shelby, horse racing gangster. So we had to use a horse hide, of course. Obviously wanted to use a horse butt. So one of the design constraints between all of our inspired series along those lines has always been a horse hide or a horse butt of some sort would be the material. That kind of also limited, you know, how much of this pattern we could do, you know, because horse butts take a and horse hides but horse butts in particular take a long time to tan especially you know this was i think 3 or 4 years ago but are just generally done in small lots and aren't widely available just i mean it's it's more rare material in many ways than shell you know it was just like okay well we can just spit out a limited series like every 6 months or something like that like a limited boot and so we did a a brown comi pell horse butt pinky blinder first and then a black fully murdered out one and that was using the derby boot and then in the meantime brett had developed the brogue boot he got some new pinking machinery in and and broguing machinery in and some new techniques for that and was essentially like made like a fully broged out semi english country kind of style in a shoe and a boot that boot had a higher quarter which I always kind of, that's always a good thing to have in the roster is a higher quartered boot in the, in the pattern lineup. So kind of took that and just asked Brett again, like, Hey, can we just take this? The half moon pinking was, was just too slow for them to do. So we kind of ditched the derby boot, the original iteration, and then, you know, took the brogue boot, you know, the ridgeline pinking and, and broguing and adapted the brogue boot pattern scaled it back quite austerely and worked off of that and that became the shelby shark i mean that one was kind of an evolution and it definitely took brett 
and and I going back and forth. But the, the pattern baseline was there. I think one of the bigger developments that while we're on Viberg that Brett did what was the what we call the hiking hunter, what's also called the short hunter. Mm-hmm. And that was designed and some of this stuff comes out of, you know, these kind of capsule collection ideas that we we do every year. And, and that one was for Ivy Street, which was kind of, you know, this mid 90s throwback, uh, more elevated kind of inspiration that was kind of near and dear to my heart because that was, you know, really my first experience with style was that era and streetwear where we now called it. I just called it, you know, getting dressed. (laughs) (laughs) And then maybe walking on a street, wearing it, wearing it. And a lot of people look at that pattern and, and think of Timberland, but the original, like what Timberland actually kind of ripped off was actually a, a mid 1960s Danner hiking boot pattern that back in the day, Danner and Viberg and Whites and these companies would kind of swap materials or patterns. So Viberg turned that pattern, you know, I think in the 80s into an insulated work boot, hunting boot. And so we worked off of that, worked off the old original and Brett just kind of, I think, found a gap in his development I think sneakers were kind of his focus at the time in different iterations then, but kind of fitted in, went back and forth a lot. I think, yeah, I went up to Victoria once to kind of see samples and and samples on the pattern mainly, but just a lot of communication back and forth and that spurned the, the hiking hunter and he did an amazing job with it. It's kind of like the Ferrari version of everything that it was informed by. You know, slight angle in the quarter, still that single continuous vamp for, you know, waterproofness. We decided to Goodyear welt it only to have more flexibility in it. Kept the split eye stay to also uh, inform that. But this goes back to, you know, materials and everything relating. So for our version, we debuted it in a, in the chamois leather from Horween, which is you know, maintenance-free, highly flexible on the smooth side, very resistant to water and cuts and scuffs, etc. I mean, it's like an oil tan on steroids. And so, you know, that was the leather, the oil tan roll collar and tongue, you know, fully gusseted tongue. All of those things became indicative to our version. None of this stuff, we don't kind of try to claim like, oh, that's just ours because, you know, the brands, the manufacturers are putting in a lot of time. So, you know, 316, I think after we debuted ours, the next season did like a, a new buck version, like straight. Yeah. It was like the kind of full Timberland version, full Tim. And it was sick. In fact, that's how Brett did the sample was you know, in really in the wheat new buck. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first two samples. And so, you know, 316 did it. We came out with another version. We've had three and then, and then Viberg, Brett did it for the seasonal collection on completely different soles, like, you know, a glue on kind of lug Vibram sole. I think it's the Olympic, but I could be wrong. I think on the 2055 last. Ours have always been on the 2040 because the pattern was designed around the 2040 and fits and, and in terms of function is, is fantastic with that. But, you know, they, they've gotten some use out of it. Unfortunately, 
both the Shelby and Hunter are put on the back burner, at least for the time being. And part of that, you know, list of, of patterns that Viber won't be producing, at least in the near term. So it's a bummer. Yeah, I know this, I think in the forum community and, you know, we get a lot of feedback, especially on the Shelby and even with the Hunter, because once a guy gets one, he typically buys whatever we have in his size in the other makeups. But a lot of people are are bothered by this. You know, the pure fact of the matter is everything right now and for the last year is, has been about that scale. I mean, Brett had, I mean, if I were to have to guess, I think probably like 40 patterns running through production. <laughs> and, and, you know, on the floor, like, you know, maybe 15 would be present for the scale that Viberg is in terms of production, call it 40 a day at capacity or somewhere around there. That's just way too many options to be running through. So I, it made sense to me. I actually probably was one of the stock lists who, even though many of our makeups, even core exclusives that we restocked were impacted, you know, like no Chucka, no Hiking Hunter, no this. We use, we've used the Bobcat literally since our brand launch with the Northwest pack. You know, those were taken off the table, but it does make sense Knowing Brett, whether these things are gone for good, he'll come back and revisit these things. But for right now, it's important that what they do, they do at a high level, that they're not spending a lot of resources on stuff that is niche and niche and niche in terms of a market. And I know like for collectors or people that like even myself that love these things like this Chuck on my foot, it's a bummer. But, yeah, the most important thing is that they're able to maximize their operations within this environment, which is quite challenging. So I'm sure it's not going to be the last that we see of these things. But at the same time, it's, it's a really tough time to be manufacturing right now. The big question, amongst many big questions that I could ask right here, are we going to see any more Shelby boots before they're done maybe forever probably not fingers crossed so we've had shelby's on order for this last year but we've had a lot of things on order that just weren't able to be produced because of capacity or supply fingers crossed there should be at least a sending off of the shelby this spring summer into fall winter we're being pretty tight-lipped because as you know like I don't like to speak to anything unless I can kind of guarantee that it'll happen. You know, we're not sharing specifications or, you know, what these things are on order. I mean, we had four, went down to two. Those are in the system. What'll be produced? I don't know. But things are moving along with Viberg. They're managing through this this challenging period. I have hopes and I think we'll be able to give at least a a near-term sending off for that. The pattern will probably evolve from the Brogue boot. Brett did the kind of iterated it further into the Hulkit. And I think that that's maybe will become a baseline for, you know, our next Peaky Blinders inspired series uh, when that's more feasible for them on the, you know, production side. But in terms of the Shelby... Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful, but at the same time, not 
giving any certainty in an uncertain manufacturing world. Well, look, let's talk about that a little bit. I imagine that much of it, or at least part of it, just kind of has to do with you know the last year, basically, and a worldwide pandemic kind of throwing things sideways. Just retail. I think that things were starting to change when you opened Division Road five years ago and have figured out how to contend with it really well. But, you know, the future of retail, it's more online, which is tough for things that have to fit onto your feet. (laughs) But I imagine that, you know, it's more than that. What do you think the future of retail looks like? I'm only asking huge questions now. Big overarchers. Well, you know, I kind of think about this quite a bit. In the past, obviously, like physical was was the channel for retail. Design, merchandising, curation, that's where people discovered stuff. Obviously, like e-commerce, internet has changed that. That transition has been taking place really over like 15 years in high-end or specialized market, say the last decade in a significant way. And I think out of that kind of you know, for boutique businesses evolved, you know, what we are, which is what I call an e-boutique where, you know, you have a physical environment, you know, multi-channel, but in a small way, usually done in the same space or, you know, within the same organization, at least brick and mortar, quote unquote, and e-commerce. And, you know, and I think the mantra has been how to, for us, but if you want to be successful in that environment is how to have those experiences relate, even though that they are completely different. And I think that those who that have been successful with multi-channel e-boutique, you know, they have a, a strong brand and a strong position that relates in both environments. You know, that's kind of where we're at now. I think the interesting thing is that the you know, larger scale, major market, multi-channel has been challenging for whether it be like the department store or luxury brand or, uh, you know, whatever has been challenging. Those that have been more successful usually had e-commerce online only, you know, take like Zappos, for example, since we're talking footwear. Those that have had challenges are your department store that's got a bunch of physical stores and has an online shop but most of that online is is outsourced right from fulfillment to content creation etc and i think that that's something that the boutique environment has figured out we try to do is you really have to to have those things relatable because it is the same customer you have to have it all under one roof from content creation to fulfillment to the store everything for us is under one roof and That's kind of one of those major qualifications in keeping that relatable. So, you know, in Seattle, for example, pre-COVID and really from the beginning, I'd say 50% of our in-store business were guys from out of town. You know, knew about us, had shopped with us, whatever. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, Seattle's a small style market, I guess you could say. Like there's, it's not like a style city. Like people are into more like camping and mountain stuff at least talking about these things. I don't know if they actually do it. (laughs) (laughs) But but they buy a lot of gear. Uh, You know what I mean? Like Buying gear is fun. I might buy gear. REI is based here. They've been quite successful. 
for a reason. I think if you scale out the investment per year per use for most, I think people would be alarmed. But regardless, <laughs> if anybody wants to send me any like unused tents, just DM me. Are you paying for shipping? I will pay shipping for that tent. <laughs> it's still a huge deal. But yeah, we were a destination shop. We're in not a high traffic environment in Seattle, like the historic district. On top of that, we're kind of niche within our niche of what we provide, which has always been kind of the strategy like this, you know, what I call kind of the top tier of heritage is where we try to be. Yeah, I mean, it's not a shotgun product. When they came into the shop, they would feel like they were in Division Road from their online experience and vice versa. And so I think that that's something that we've strived towards. There's a handful of e-boutiques, quote unquote, that do that quite well that I've definitely taken a lot of notice to and, and strategy from, frankly. That's where we are. I think, you know, the future e-commerce online is going to be dominant. There's definitely work-life changes. You know, I mean, you and I talked about some of this stuff like years ago. I think some of those long-term structural changes have been put into fast forward because of COVID work life, what the office culture looks like, what that whole environment is, urban renewal over the last 20 years to, you know, some levels of decay, people moving from cities to rural environments. Just did it. I know. You're you're <laughs> an example. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm just a statistic. Now you are. With coyote in my yard yesterday. Yeah, we're post industrial era. And I think this didn't present it presented the only reason to work in new ways that people have been talking about for a long time. You know, we used to call it telecommuting, right? And <laughs> no one's using a telephone anymore. And I think there's still a place for cities and all of that. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But whether it's leveraging new technology, society functioning in a very different way than it has. All of these things, I think, will be in some degree a structural change. And for retail, that means that the physical business is going to get smaller and it's going to remain smaller. How people acquire that, you know, is going to change. Like they're not going to just like maybe drive across town. They're going to maybe make purposeful visits. How they shop could be different rather than buying one thing. They're buying for their season. There's those kind of things on the margins. But I think while the physical will be smaller in terms of market share, and, you know, a lot of people were forced to buy online this last year. Up to COVID, something like high 60s, low 70s percentage of the acquisition of apparel and footwear was in store. You know, there were a lot of people that just refused to shop online. Well, that really wasn't an option for most to not shop online if they were going to acquire apparel and footwear. Yeah, it's ingrained now. It's ingrained. Like for old people too. <laughs> oh, for sure. So I think that it forced, you know, some of that, but I think the physical experience is going to actually be more crucial than ever in how it's delivered. It needs to be more special because it's going to be acquired by a customer a fewer amount of times. 
you know, that can be within the market or that can be within a brand, whatever. But, you know, I don't think people are going to flood back out and shop the way they used to shop. It will remain an activity, but it will need to be a special activity. And and none of this is like really all that new. It's just kind of maybe not the final chapter, but maybe towards a later chapter in in retailing and what we've been used to. I think that that physical experience has to drive connection with a brand and the retailer that drives future purchases online to have a better return with those purchases. I mean, I'm kind of probably speaking to the choir with most guys in this arena, but you look at something, you buy something, you read something, you make a decision, you click, you know, check out, and then it's like a waiting game, right? And with every day, you know, there's a little bit of anticipation, there's a little bit of diminishing returns from that experience versus going into a store, finding or discovering something that you knew about or you didn't, and walking out with it, right? And so that online purchasing has a lower just satisfaction rate, but having a physical experience and that, and that connection with a brand that a customer can have as a memory and, you know, be intrinsic to their purchasing online, I think that that's the better return, the better yield for everybody. So I I think it's going to be different. I think channels of distribution need to be explored. I think how we make retail interesting again for the customer and for us needs to be explored. You know, that's kind of what we're trying to do. What does this mean for Division Road? Is it going to look different? I certainly hope so. I mean, look, we I feel like we do a very good job. I think we do we we do a lot of content. Patina post. Patina post. Honestly, much better than any boot content that I make. So look forward to that thing every time. The patina post, you know, exploring guidebook stuff in general, journals, and then weekly bulletins. I mean our product content, sorry for those people who don't like to read, but we try to <laughs> just listen to podcasts about the stuff for those people. Exactly. And then when people come into the store, we're not what I call a bro retailer. Like we operate at a, at a very high level. We regard ourselves as, as delivering a very professional, casual, but professional retail experience, hoping that that has a lasting impression. But, you know, like, let's just be honest. Most customers don't like shopping physically because the physical experience by and large from the way the business is transitioned and 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 all of that sucks it's bad you know you go into a store and there's sales associates text messaging not caring you know like or being all over you or being all over you like shark attack it's not often rewarding. Of course, in like the boutique sphere, it, it can be, but you can still go in. There's too cool for school or kids running the candy shop, whatever. Like by and large, retail used to be a profession. It became a fallback. And we have a lot of people in the business who just really aren't interested in what retail is, which is it's about the customer and it's about an experience and it's about service. And that is, you know, we've kind of wanted to be about all the highfalutin things in retail. But at the end of the day, like doing retail very well 
is about a lot of gritty work. Very unglamorous stuff. That's how it's done well, and that's what comes through the customer. And I think it's not being done well, by and large. And so people just like, I'm not going to go shopping. You know, this is how online became such a thing because it does have a diminishing return. And there's more risk in doing it, returning and wrong sizing and, you know, all of this. Oh, I've got to measure my pants or again, or I've got to ask these guys, like, what do I wear if I'm a size 10 in an Allen Edmonds and hope they're right, you know, and know what they're talking about. I got to read on forums for two hours and then be I'm more confused now than I was before. You know, people actually take a lot of effort to purchase online because and it's my, I don't know if I'll say belief, but it's my idea that because, you know, by and large, what they are acquiring in terms of experience in store environments is mediocre most of the time or just downright insulting or annoying. Anyways, going back to what Division Road will look like, I'm trying to look at what the next 10 years of retail would look like and can look like rather than what the past 10 years have been. Looking at the dislocation and disruption in the marketplace, mainly with like the customer's expectations of what retail should look like as an opportunity to do something that is... A, more rewarding for them, B, more rewarding to us as the retailer, and for all to have kind of like a, a deeper connection to the products and mainly the experience. And I think that while physical will become smaller, we're looking at how to make that very interesting and more experiential. I think retail as a business in a lot of ways has become uninteresting. There's been a lot of concepts and you know models in small pieces that have been tried and explored, but we're really pivoting. I'm calling it Division Road 2.0. We're really pivoting over the next couple of years in kind of a new multi-channel approach. And I guess what I can say at this point is the physical experience will be different. Our goal is to drive more people for more reward to that physical experience and taking this thing to an area or a region you either want to go or possibly are really kind of trying some very different things for retail that I think will be quite interesting and rewarding. Now, I'd say we're a product and informational resource. And that was always the aim, whether it be customer service, content, collaborations, merch mix, etc. Like the next step for us is being more of a community resource. And I think that that's something that in our niche and maybe by and large in, in the business, but in our niche, and you're a perfect example of this, we have an enthusiast core to the customer. Our customers are passionate about this stuff. And there's really no place, no center in the physical world for them to be. 
if that makes sense. I think that that's kind of the next evolution for us is to try to be and drive a piece of that hub. Yeah. So you're going to do something very different and pretty cool and you're not going to tell us. I get it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Whatever. It'll look quite different. It'll take some faith from the customer. And we hope all the things that people want to acquire in terms of the goods, the experience will be available, but also things that they haven't thought about. I throw a lot of broad concept stuff out there. We haven't announced anything. We're still in mid planning. This is, you know, this 2.0 project we've been working on literally for a year now and hope to announce, which I'll give obviously our core clients and your community an early preview of, but that'll probably be in maybe June or July of what this is all going to look like. Obviously just a ploy to get back on the podcast, which I respect. Maybe if you'll have me after this. TBD. The, exactly. Well, you can, you can write about it too, or, you know, do whatever you want. <laughs> Maybe I'll just come hang out and tell people like on the street, <laughs> total shift. Cool. I think the overarching theme of this is if somebody was able to visit and shop a place like the Double RL Ranch, that's kind of an umbrella of the idea, but really it's about not just acquiring goods, but this all being authentic and us, you know, the division road crew or army or whatever you want to call us living the lifestyle that is informed by these goods and our customers being a piece of that, you know, and I think doing that in an, in an elevated curated way that, you know, becomes like a real destination. And that's kind of what we're looking to do with the physical and then have that inform much of our online operations and those things being even more in tandem. We're working on it. It looks like everything's moving in the right direction. Come fall, hopefully, of this year, Division Road will start to look very different, but at the same time, the exact same Division Road just kind of expanding and evolving to what I think the next 10 years of retail can be the interest is peaked all right well stay tuned i promise i will look man we've we've covered a ton big stuff specific stuff potential new shrouded and mystery futures <laughs> but before i let you get out of here there's one big question that i have to ask okay so basically you have to get rid of all your boots and shoes for the rest of your life except for one pair and you get a pair of sneakers for the gym, and let's pretend that, you know, there aren't any more weddings. Or maybe you have, like, you borrow a pair of nice shoes to go to a wedding, if that's not your choice. What's it going to be? Oh, One pair. Including sneakers. You don't have to tell me about the sneakers. Well, I'll tell you about the sneakers, because I only wear one kind of sneakers. All right, tell me about the sneakers. Made in the USA or made in the UK New Balance. Probably the 996. I'm there with you. Yeah. One pair of. Well, they'd have to be boots 
because I pretty much live in booths. You know, this is tough because we all have our new fascinations, right? It's not supposed to be easy. It's probably the toughest question that anybody could ask anybody. I would go with the black Chrome XL 2030 service boot. On the wedge? On the wedge. <sighs> Love it. Good thing Ticho's not here. Why? He's a, wed- he's a wedge hater. He's a dirty wedge hater. I mean, the other one, which would be a threat, would be the Port Vitello calf service boot. Ugh. One of my all-time favorites from you. So good. Look, completely different leather in like a year or two. It's my most worn ever healed Viberg for sure. All right. So you kind of just picked two, but I'll let you get away with it. You know, you brought Ticho into it. Wedge hater. I had to give him a selection too. So, you know, it's one for each of you. You're very thoughtful, Jason. You're very thoughtful. Well, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Look. Before we get out of here, huge thanks to Grant Stone for sponsoring the episode. Give their shoes and boots the look they deserve. And don't forget about Stitchdown Premium. Signing up today will be the best decision you make in that particular minute, uh, at least, for sure. But probably also a longer time frame. Give it a run. Check out stitchdown.com for more info. But most of all, huge thanks to Jason for coming on today. This was a blast, my man. Hey, bud. This was a huge honor really was and and thanks for having me on all right i guess we'll be doing it again uh very soon when you actually reveal things (laughs) that's it for this week take care of your shoes we'll see you next time